Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us in this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with content matter experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Amber Lene Martirosov, and today we will be chatting with Blake Johnson from the University of Georgia College of Pharmacy, Joseph Nardalillo from Wayne State University, Michelle Link Patterson from Penn Medicine, Andrew Tenpass from Texas A&M, and Tumi Osunfanmi, who is a PGY1 pharmacy resident at Hennepin Health. So today our conversation is really about action in ambulatory care and striving for diversity, equity, and inclusion in our day-to-day practice. As ambulatory care pharmacists, we all need new skills that will enable us to support equity and inclusion for our patients and for our colleagues. So today, our group would like to start a conversation around real-world experiences with DEI in clinical practice. Thank you for joining us, and we'll jump right in. With COVID and the recent transitions to a lot of telehealth and virtual medicine, many of our ambulatory care pharmacists are feeling the sting of the digital divide. Michelle, I know you personally have done a lot of telehealth work recently. Can you tell us a little bit about the challenges you've seen for your patients? Sure. Thanks, Amber. I will say that interestingly, the challenges I've seen have not just been on the patient side, but also on the pharmacist side as well. There's a lot of patients that I have been unable to see through telemedicine because they've had challenges even getting access to a computer or video. Maybe they don't even have like a smartphone. So A lot of times it's difficult just to set up a telemedicine visit when we have to use a telephone visit instead. So doing a lot of calls either over video when we can, if not doing telephone. The other thing I'm realizing is that patients may have help at home, but a lot of them do not. So if it's an elderly patient who doesn't have, you know, a grandchild who knows the technology in and out, sometimes it can be difficult because they don't have that support system. From the provider side, I'll say like there's some pharmacists, young, old, doesn't really matter who just aren't familiar with using different types of technology for video visits. So they might not even offer it to their patients. So have any of you guys seen this or had any similar experiences or maybe have a solution to some of these situations? Yeah, I can add something here. So compared to what you're saying, Michelle, the pandemic has actually made it somewhat easier for me to reach my patient population. So my clinical practice site is at an indigent care clinic serving Athens, Georgia and the surrounding counties. Transportation has always been a huge barrier to care for my patients. So this transition to mostly telephonic visits has actually allowed our consult service to reach patients in a more convenient manner. Of course, that presents new challenges, such as patients running out of minutes on their cell phone plans or having poor cellular service across rural Georgia. It would be nice to be able to see all my patients face-to-face or screen-to-screen, but unfortunately, virtual visits beyond the telephone calls remain a barrier for my patients, pandemic or no pandemic. This has, though, sparked our scheduling team to be more intentional with scheduling the clinic visits in tandem with our primary care visits to help reduce patient trips when they do need to come into clinic for in-person visits. And so, especially now thinking about the price of gas has really been something that our patients have held a lot of stake and value in and appreciate from our scheduling team side. Great point, Blake. On a similar note, I feel as though technology barriers have actually become more and more clear as we integrate this technology into our practices. One thing that comes to mind is use of CGMs or continuous glucose monitors. 
In the diabetes space, we've seen how valuable data can collect with these monitors and reduce patient finger stick burden. However, many of the patients using these tools are older adults who may not be comfortable using advanced technology, or they may be patients without access to a computer or a smartphone. One solution for us has been ensuring that our office computers are compatible with the readers so we can upload information directly from their devices when the patients are in person. Unfortunately, if a patient doesn't have a computer or a smartphone, a telephonic visit poses a bit more of a challenge. However, asking patients to review key aspects of their monitor, like their number of lows, percent time and range, and times of large changes from high to low or vice versa can be a great compromise. I really feel that this is one of our reminders that our ideal scenarios aren't always possible, but making the most of what we have can empower our clinical decisions and help our patients with their self-management. Well, thank you everyone for sharing those perspectives. And Blake, I really keyed in on something that you were talking about that even pre-pandemic, something that your patients really struggled with was transportation. And I think this could bring us to a new discussion point. You know, even though we have opportunities for telehealth and telemedicine, we still have a lot of patients that struggle with being able to come to their appointments or really engage in their care due to barriers to access. So my next question for the group is, how do you engage your patients to deal with some of those barriers to their access? Yeah, I think this is very worthy to talk about, Amber, and really the root of what you're getting at is that access to care aspect. And where do you start when you talk about access to care? There's a lot of layers that need to be unpacked. I think it actually goes back even further than what I've said and into what Michelle said on adapting to the patient's needs. Can you safely and effectively care for that patient in a telephonic or telemedicine encounter? Or is an in-person visit truly what's best for that patient? Then how do you reconcile when a patient may be facing that transportation or financial barriers? And everything we do, we have to keep that patient in the center of the decision. Of course, we want to meet our evidence-based, guideline-driven clinical goals. But if those presenting barriers prevent us from providing that care in a safe and effective manner, we've got to work with our patients and other stakeholders to find those solutions to the presenting barriers. I'm lucky enough to have volunteer providers that can see patients two days a week after work hours, what we affectionately call night clinic. And this has been a solution for caring for patients that don't have occupations with paid time off or sick time. Staying an extra hour or two after clinic, one or two days a month for us to maintain our consult service for our patients with those barriers to me is worth it if I can be confident in the care that I'm providing the patient and ensuring that that care isn't being compromised. I think we have to move from seeing these situations as access barriers and change our mindset to adaptation opportunities. Because in a pandemic, we all need to continue to adapt in order to continue providing patient-centered, high-quality pharmacy services. I can also weigh in here. I started at my current practice site, the McGowan VA Outpatient Clinic, last fall. From a system perspective, the VA realizes that many veterans are afflicted with mental health disorders, substance abuse disorders, and physical disabilities or transportation issues. As a result, visits are conducted via a number of different platforms, including face-to-face, over the phone, or even virtually if needed. The important underlying concept is making care as accessible as possible for all patients, not just veterans. I've learned that on any given clinic day, I also need to be extremely flexible and adaptable A visit could be scheduled as face-to-face, but may quickly morph into a virtual or telephone visit. 
my overall therapeutic goals don't really change, just the medium. I think that conventional healthcare, especially in outpatient settings, is rapidly evolving. Patients actually now expect and even demand expanded access to clinical pharmacists and members of the healthcare team. It is therefore increasingly important for ambulatory care pharmacists to be comfortable providing care in a variety of settings, whatever the situation dictates. And to add to that too, Hennepin serves a large underserved patient population in which many of the patients have transportation barriers. So a way that our health institution help encourage the patients to come to their office appointments is to offer them bus passes or even have them have a driver take them to their office appointment so they can make it to their appointment. Hennepin is also in the process of starting a new service for which our ambulatory care resident will go to an apartment complex in which many of our patients reside in to help provide accessible care for our patient population. Well, thank you, Blake and Andrew and Toomey for providing the insight into some of those barriers that you've resolved. And, you know, I agree. I think, Andrew, you made a really important and impactful statement that things are continually evolving and our patients really are expecting and demanding more of us as healthcare providers and as pharmacists. And so we have to be evolving in all of our approach to patient care. With that, I'm going to actually transition us to a different topic and how we all might need to look at ourselves and evolve uh, specifically as ambulatory care pharmacists and how we can best serve our LGBTIQA plus community. You know, I've been reading a lot and there's literature that demonstrates that individuals that identify as LGBTIQA plus or we'll use LGBTQ just for the ease of this conversation today, they face an array of health disparities and and really require us to evaluate where we're at in providing care and and serving or striving for allyship if possible. Andrew and Blake, I'm going to call on you a little bit here because I know you both have experiences working in ambulatory care settings with this patient population. So can you share a few of your experiences or any considerations that you might have for our listeners today? Yeah, absolutely. So in pharmacy school, I was lucky enough to intern with a clinic that did serve the LGBTQ community. And the number of times my unchecked implicit bias and cultural incompetence came back to bite this student from rural Tennessee was actually pretty astounding. That internship taught me the importance of respecting pronouns and respecting identity. When you're raised in the South, I'm sure a lot of people know we're we are raised to always use sir and ma'am when interacting with your elders. And this really became something second nature to me and using pronouns with cues that hinted towards a specific gender. Because so I often offended patients during telephone encounters that given our software system, not having the capability to provide us a patient's preferred name or pronouns oftentimes led to hurt feelings or someone not feeling seen for who they are. So we're talking about patients that have lived or are living in a body that doesn't match their personhood, right? So I was likely reinforcing to these patients the biases that they've experienced with the healthcare system and society already. I was inadvertently devaluing their personhood. And really, I had to go through the process of untraining my brain on using sir and ma'am. And now years later, I, I try to introduce myself with my pronouns to create a more welcoming environment for patients in this identity group. And I think we all have to embrace that uncomfortableness, embrace 
that we do make mistakes and we need to see those mistakes as a learning opportunity and not let ourselves become frozen in our cultural knowledge gaps. We all sign up for a community, continuing education as pharmacists, right? So why not take that opportunity to sign up for CE or a certificate program that can help you learn more about caring for a patient population you're unfamiliar with? Why not add podcasts dedicated to these issues to your morning or evening commute to work? Why not expand your social media following to include accounts that educate the masses on these issues? Why not add a book from a Black author to your book club rotation? You know, your desire to overcome these knowledge gaps has to match your desire to listen and learn from these communities. My uh, experiences are actually pretty similar to Blake's. I was fortunate as a PGY1 community pharmacy resident to moonlight at an LGBTQ plus clinic created by UnityPoint Health in Cedar Falls, Iowa. The clinic was started about four and a half years ago by a UnityPoint provider named Kyle Christensen, whose own teenage son came out as transgender in the ninth grade. Dr. Christensen realized that there was a desperate need for compassionate care of transgender patients in that part of Iowa. And the statistics are rather sobering. For example, one in four transgender patients have had a very negative healthcare experience within the last year. Also, 20% were refused care simply for being transgender. Eventually, a collaborative interdisciplinary clinic was formed in Cedar Falls and clinical pharmacists, including residents like myself, were tasked with educating patients about the pros and cons of oral and injectable therapies that aided in the transitioning process, as well as filling those scripts and counseling patients about administration and side effects. Pharmacists also served as drug information experts on the interdisciplinary team and assisted both providers and patients in navigating insurance requirements and limitations, which aren't always so clear cut. Patients often explained to me why they appreciated that LGBTQ plus clinic so much. They found, for example, that when they attempted to pick up prescriptions for injectable testosterone in other community settings, they often face stigmas and undue scrutiny from other healthcare professionals making the process more taxing than it really needed to be. At UnityPoint Health, we attempted to make the education, filling, and dispensing process as seamless and hassle-free as possible. The process was designed to be completed entirely in-house. Patients received their therapies in the mail and circumvented many of the hassles they experienced elsewhere. I can proudly say that the clinic was wildly successful. There were patients, for example, who were willing to drive from two to three hours away because of the clinic's dedicated, safe, and welcoming atmosphere. Others are attempting to replicate that template in other parts of Iowa and the Midwest. One other thing that often comes to mind is the extent of ingrained gender and sexual biases that occur with very simple aspects of pharmacy practice that we take for granted, such as patient counseling. Think about a time when you were counsel a patient on something like a potentially teratogenic medication, such as an ACE inhibitor. Are you asking if a patient is sexually active or because they must be on some form of contraception under the assumption that a female patient is cisgendered and engaging in sex with a cisgendered male. A lot of these implicit reactions that we learn in school to protect patients and ensure their safety often carry assumptions and could require patients to correct you about their gender or sexual identity. For patients who often carry many levels of trauma, particularly with healthcare providers, framing conversations in a gender neutral manner or with open-ended questions, creates the permission structure for patients to share information on their own terms. A better way to ask this question may be, in order to make sure this medication is appropriate for you, do you mind if I ask if there's a chance you could become pregnant in the next few months? This small difference, rather than asking, you'll want to ensure that you're on birth control to a female patient can completely shift your relationship with the patient and ensure a more inclusive and welcoming environment. Thank you all for your 
insight and experiences and and really with you know changing some of these discussions i can say on my own personal level i've had some experiences on my own with former students as well as my own patients who identify as lgbtq plus or you know struggle with even just certain identity concerns and and in the discussions with them i've really appreciated being able to kind of as as blake said check my biases and find ways to make sure that I'm educating myself more on this level. And with that, I think that there was a really interesting article that was recently published in AJPE, which I would encourage all of our listeners to read if they haven't, but it really focuses on the pharmacist's role as an ally. And I think as a group, we've had this discussion of, you know, an ally really is someone whose purpose is to help, to provide support, and really to provide assistance in any ongoing efforts or struggles. And I think that we need to focus on, while we want to potentially strive for allyship, but we really have to focus on the strive part first. And in order to do that, identify experiences that we've all had where we may have had opportunities to provide that help or support. And if we haven't had those opportunities, then really to make sure that we are taking the time to educate ourselves so that we are ready to help and to provide support. One of the discussions that I think we had as a group was really experiencing or observing microaggressions. And I think that I've personally had several patients who have refused to work with me simply because I'm a female provider. And I think, you know, how can I strive for allyship for not only myself, but also for my patients or even my other colleagues who may face that kind of microaggression or discrimination or stigmatization or other forms of hate. So I guess, you know, kind of to stop me from talking and hear what the group has to say, what are your guys' thoughts about striving for allyship and really preparing ourselves to provide that support and help? Yeah, on a similar note, particularly from a patient perspective, one of my personal and biggest pet peeves is the word non-compliant. You know, often I'll see this within our patient care notes riddled throughout. And as pharmacists, it's one of the things we come across often. Uh, I strongly feel that when folks are using this word, it often implies that a patient, quote, doesn't care enough to take their medications. However, in reality, we don't really ask ourselves, why is this patient actually non-compliant? Are these patients facing socioeconomic stressors like food insecurity or low income that may be requiring them to work extended hours during the day? Does the patient not trust their healthcare provider due to their past traumas or discriminations or biases within the healthcare system? It's been proven over and over that underrepresented minorities have their pain acknowledged or receive subpar care compared to white patients at less rates and often don't receive medications or other treatments at the same rates. So what can we do about it as an ally to these patients? We can speak up. We in terms of documentation, can ask our patients and document the root causes and social determinants of health when applicable. Talking to your provider colleagues about why this patient might be non-compliant rather than just highlighting that they're non-compliance and actually addressing and helping them get to the root cause and seeing what we can do to increase adherence in our patients. During my residency, I've had patients who trusted me to provide them care rather than my preceptors or even their providers just because I'm Black. Unfortunately, some patients, especially those of color, may not feel comfortable receiving care from someone who doesn't look like them. So my role is to provide the reassurance to my patients that all the providers that are taking care of them have their best interest for their health. 
To me, I think that's a really important point. And I know a lot of times it's hard to find a provider who looks like you if you're a Black person. Even in my own family, like I'm white, but my husband is Black. And it took me forever to find a doctor that was Black that he could see within our health system. And I know being a white person, a lot of people may say things to me that they feel comfortable or safe saying that are inappropriate about race or, you know, people of low income or other types of groups that can be singled out. And I find that because I'm white, it's like a safe space, but I have to say something because it's inappropriate. And I am the one who finds myself standing up for these groups of people, even though I'm not a part of those groups. I feel like it's our role as the pharmacist and as the provider here to, you know, be that ally and strive to be that ally. Definitely not perfect at it every time, but I think as pharmacists, we have an important role and a duty to stand up and say something when that happens. So I know it's difficult to do because you want to build a relationship with your patients and you want them to trust you. But I think in the interest of society and those other marginalized groups, it's important for us to say something. Basically, in summary, I think it's important for us, even if we're not part of a marginalized group, that we stand up for those groups and to be the allies that they need. Unfortunately, we are coming to the end of the time for this podcast. And I would love to be able to just devote hours to being able to talk about this. Unfortunately, we can't do that on the podcast forum, but I know that we as a group would love to challenge our audience to think of ways that they can engage in meaningful conversations about DEI. We invite all of the listeners to be on the lookout for blog posts related to DEI action and ambulatory care, as well as continuing this conversation utilizing ASHP Connect. We would love to hear your thoughts on how we can better incorporate DEI into everyday clinical practice. And really, we would like to ask our audience to reflect on, one, what biases patients could experience or face by providers or you in your setting. Two, what are you doing or have you done to resolve slash improve your perspective? And finally, three, how are you including trainees into resolving or improving that perspective? Lastly, if you haven't before, I encourage you to check out all of ASHP's online resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as the Ambulatory Care Resource Center, the Preceptor Toolkit, the Research Resource Center, Clinical Pharmacy Resources, and more. And lastly, thank you again for all of my panelists in this podcast, and thank you for our audience for tuning in and listening to this session of Hot Topics in Pharmacy. We really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the ASHP podcast through your favorite podcast provider. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.